Greetings and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your video game podcast here coming back at you for the last week of the month of month of March of the year 2021. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's glad to be back with you once again, and that we can all be gathered here together in this audio format. And I say gathered together, I use that term loosely, given the fact that we are talking amongst ourselves, outputting a program, outputting content that you eventually listen to on your own time, in your own way, in your own midst. So, yes, we're all together in that sense. And even uh, more meta than that, we technically aren't even technically together in the same room right now because of where we're at. We're still in a code red COVID situation, despite, you know, other places in the world not being in that situation still. But yes, that little point of order aside, this week I'm Dennis, the man who curses the existence of spring allergies. <laughs> ah, yes, as if the uh, the COVIDs wasn't uh, enough to worry about, uh, then comes the allergies, making their annual appearance. Yes, those jerks. As the uh, seasons are starting to change, as, uh, I mean, where we are, it's been fairly mild for a while. Uh, I think we've been out of, uh, well, out of any sort of snowpack situation for a couple of weeks now, I think. Pretty much. I mean, there was a bit of a, not to turn this into like, you know, local Winnipeg, Manitoba weather situation, but, uh, <laughs> given this, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we, there was a bit of a snowstorm yesterday, but it seemed to like, be really bad for like five minutes from what it seems like. And then it all melted away right again. Like, so oh, ah, uh, weather, it's a weird thing. Give it 10 yes. minutes. It'll change. But of course, with it transitioning our weather from winter into springtime, we're starting to get warmer conditions. Uh, perhaps plants are starting to uh, slowly activate and come alive again. Grass all exposed everywhere. And then for people such as uh, you and I, uh, the springtime allergies are rearing their ugly heads once again. Yes. Yes, they are. It's uh, It's a good time to be alive, isn't it? Yeah, you know, between all the hay fever and, you know, just the general dust that gets kicked up around this time because one of the other things that happens, you know, where we're from anyways, a lot of sand and stuff gets put down throughout the winter, you know, because of the ice situation and stuff that happens during the winter. Can't have non-sanded streets, obviously, but, you know, when it, when the snow and everything all melts, it causes a big, really... Not great dusty situation for a while until they clean the streets and stuff, which they're not going to do until everything is fully or totally out of the woods, which they can't determine just yet. But, um, yeah. And even when they do, it goes and creates a big mess, uh, giant dust clouds everywhere that kind of lingers depending on conditions. Uh, I actually, I was driving down uh, a highway the other day where uh, I was passing by a piece of heavy equipment that was cleaning the sand off uh, the shoulder area off the highway highway lane I was driving on, and then I held, had to hold my breath as I was going through the dust, cr- dust cloud it was creating. Yes. So that's always fun. Yeah. I, and then hope I don't pass yeah. out. Yeah, pretty much, because everyone only has a limit when they have, when it comes to holding their breath, and you really should be doing that when driving. I don't know. I enjoy a challenge, though. <laughs> yes, of course. 
Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. So, uh, I'm, I'm somewhat thankful that, uh, at least my allergies haven't, uh, revved up, uh, quite fully yet. They're not in, uh, full throttle gear yet. Uh, getting a little bit of the, uh, nasal congestion and then a little bit of the post nasal drip, which after a while, it's gonna irritate the back of my throat and make it a bit raw. And then if I try to talk, I sound maybe a bit hoarse. And then I start to concern people that, oh no, do you have a sore throat? What's going on? Do you have the COVIDs? And, no, it's what happens every year. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's not much I can do about it except take my uh, traditional cocktail of, uh, you know, various uh, uh, allergy pills, cold and sinus pills, and, and teas that uh, just help settle everything down. We'll get through it. Give it a couple of weeks. We'll all be fine. Pretty much. Yes, and uh, also, uh, it, you know, curse me to it, this happens every year, but uh, the more we talk about it, the more it just reinforces we are old men who now just talk about our physical conditions and our ailments. <laughs> yes, unfortunately. <laughs> Look at the topics we've covered in the first uh, five minutes of this program. The weather and what's ailing us. <laughs> yes. What the hell are we doing? <laughs> so I'd like to ev- welcome everyone to the Senior Citizen Report. We're here with Mike and Dennis. Uh, next, we'll talk about what the grandkids are up to. <laughs> Yikes. Well, anyways, uh. Well, that's a show not for, uh, another 30 years down the road. Yeah. <laughs> Good God. Assuming, anyways, assuming um, podcasts are even still a thing 30 years down the road. <laughs> well, they probably will be. I mean, I, anyways, we don't, we don't need to like go on future speculation of ridiculous things here, but, uh, yeah. Uh, fair enough. But uh, what we can do is talk about ridiculous things that aren't the weather and aren't our uh, physical conditions and what's ailing us at this moment. So we've given you people out there enough moments of us being old men. Instead, we will turn our attention to the core things that you came to hear, hear us talk about, or you just tuned in because you like the sounds of our voices, which is A-OK too. And you enjoy hearing the, the, the witty repartee that is exchanged between the two of us over the course of the next several many minutes. <laughs> yes, hopefully. Yes, hopefully you're not just. Hopefully this isn't some punishment for you. In which case, hope it's working and you've learned your lesson. Why did you do that thing in the first place? <laughs> what the hell's wrong with you? There are other people to consider in this world beyond just yourself. Now you sit there and you think about what you've done. You know what? Write out lines. Repeat the same <laughs> sentence. I will not re- repeat those actions that got me into this situation in the first place. Hundred lines. There you go. That's your punishment on top. Of listening to us. Yes. <laughs> uh, instead, for everyone else who's not being punished by listening to this program, uh, we'll turn our attention now to the ludicrous leadoffs, the two news items we have uh, that are just always an extra special kind of special. They're floating out there in the ether. Perhaps you've come across them. Perhaps you've heard about them. Uh, perhaps these are entirely news to you. Uh, we have two items this week that deal specifically with the idea of cross-promotion, uh, different brands coming together for different products, and just uh, video games uh, licenses being used for non-video game purposes. Yeah, um, and I, I think that you know sometimes there are certain video game properties that end up in this situation far more than others. And, you know, like, some, be, just because of the characters and stuff that are in the games sort of, like, lend themselves to that type of thing. Um, one of like the perennial ones that have really been kind of in this situation the most, I would say though, over the last 25 years has been Pokemon. 
I think that's a, uh, a fair assessment. And, uh, Yes, it seems like uh, Pokemon can really be licensed for anything. It feels like it has been used for anything and everything. Maybe not so much uh, of what we've seen here in North America, but uh, certainly in Japan, Pokemon has been licensed and used for pretty much anything. Uh, just the other day, I came across an article of a, specific, a certain region, uh, prefect uh, in Japan, that sadly the name escapes me at this moment, but their local mail service uh, was licensing the image of Slowpoke, the Pokemon Slowpoke, as a character for their mailboxes and some of their mail trucks. Is that really such a great idea? I mean, to us, you wouldn't think so. I I believe there are other reasons beyond just uh, the fact of it being slow. I don't think it was themed around the slowness and, and the lack of haste with which the mail service was being delivered. Uh, I believe there are other reasons, but... Uh, I cannot immediately recall. I think it was something to do with food, actually. Hmm. If I, if I'm going off the top of my head, I believe the mail trucks had images of slowpoke of three slowpokes eating. I think an udon. <laughs> so, so, okay. but the general takeaway is slowpoke was being appropriated for the use by this mail service on mailboxes and mail trucks. You're not going to see that yeah. in North America. No. But in, you know, in Asia, in Japan, in, in various countries, in, uh, in, well, in the Asian continent, Pokemon will be licensed for ridiculous things. And if not on mail trucks, if not on mailboxes, uh, you'll be able to get yourself some official Pokemon branded, Pokemon themed sunscreen. Because that's a thing that exists now. Official Pokemon sunscreen. Yeah. Sure, go, go that. Uh, Japanese skincare company Shishido is the one rolling out these specific bottles of their sunscreen emblazoned with various Pokemon and Pocket Monsters uh, on them. They're rolling them out in Japan as well as Hong Kong and in areas of mainland China. Uh, and each region is getting different Pokemon bottles, which is... Interesting, although not entirely surprising, given the fact that there's so many goddamn Pokemon, you can have a whole lot going on. So Japan is going to be getting the Pikachu and Squirtle bottles, as well as Eevee, just regular Eevee, none of the uh, various evolutions of Eevee. Uh, while Pikachu is also going to be released in Hong Kong, China is getting Pikachu, Squirtle, Psyduck, and Jigglypuff. And apparently there's going to be a specific Charmander bottle uh, available at duty-free shops in the areas as well. So each of them, uh, it's not as though they are colored with the specific Pokemon on the bottle. It's not as though they're trying to replicate the scent or anything specific to that Pokemon. Uh, it is just a general SPF 50 sunscreen that is used, it, and that's used in each bottle to, regardless of the Pokemon on the front of it. But you're getting neat little package with your, perhaps your favorite Pokemon character on the front of it and also the back of it. So you can show off the world, hey, I've got my Squirtle sunscreen or my Charmander sunscreen, which, I mean, on the face of it, it seems kind of ridiculous that there'd be Charmander sunscreen. Charmander being a fire Pokemon doesn't really need sunscreen. Though maybe the implication is that the sunscreen will protect you against Charmander's flames, perhaps? Ooh, yes. Uh, more generally, protects you from being burned. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. 
seems like a strange uh, pairing of things, but um, it is a strange pairing. But is it as strange as perhaps this next ludicrous leadoff? No, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's definitely not. Uh, plus, I don't know. Like as we said, Pokemon can be used for anything. But like that's the that's sort of like the um, the privilege of the Pokemon franchise. It, it you know they've they've made hundreds of these little cutesy characters, and like you said, they can be kind of put in any situation to sell anything. Basically, like they have they each have their own little personality quirk, and you can use Slowpoke to handle the mail. You can use Pikachu probably to handle some electricity or batteries or something. You could use you know, Squirtle for maybe even hydration drinks or whatever. Anyways, things like that. You can use Pokemon for anything, but um, other video game series sometimes have a little bit of a harder time shoehorning themselves into um, partnerships with companies. Um, though I was a little bit surprised because this next one hasn't seemed to have that big of a problem. I've seen cross-promotions with this franchise a fair amount over the years. Uh, it's true. It's a franchise that's been around for 20 years at this point. I, I think, sounds, uh, yeah, I think later this right. year it turns 20. So, uh, it's been around for 20 years. It, it has been licensed and, uh, co-branded into different products that, as we've seen. Basically anytime there's a new game comes out, we'll see it plastered on packages, say, of, uh, of snack foods or snack chips. Uh, and it's, uh, or even beverages, you know, the high intensity beverages, like a, a Mountain Dew thing. If they want to seem cool and attract a, a hardcore gamer audience, they'll slap on some Halo branding. Yeah. Makes sense. And it works. You know, Halo has a, a built in audience. Uh, that's again, going on 20 years as a franchise. Totally makes sense. And then the, maybe there's some kind of, you know, a uniquely titled uh, flavor, perhaps in that Mountain Dew bottle, or just in general, it's a normal package of of Doritos, for example. But it's got Master Chief or some other Halo branding on it. It's just visual element, graphics, and that's where the the branding and uh, interrelationship between Halo and the the snack food product really ends. However, Pringles has uh, decided to go a different route. With its uh, Halo branding relationship, its licensing relationship with Halo, uh, and instead of just simply slapping on Master Chief or other pieces of Halo artwork onto Pringles canisters to sell barbecue, sour cream and onion, ketchup, regular, wavy, various standard and pre-existing Pringles flavor or Pringles potato chips, instead they have concocted an entirely new flavor that is themed around. An animal that exists in the Halo universe. <laughs> yeah, um, and that animal is, uh, well, I mean, it's, uh, it's called the Moa. Yeah, it's, a, yeah, it's, I, I just want to make sure I wasn't reading this wrong. It's the, the Moa, uh, but the, <laughs> this is a, this is weird for two different reasons to me. It's not just Moa flavored potato chips. It's Moa burger flavored potato chips. <laughs> so not only is it a potato chip flavored after a fictional thing, it's a potato chip flavored after a fictional thing made out of another fictional thing. <laughs> so it's, it's flavored like a burger made out of a fictional bird. So as if like, as if the taste of the bird itself wouldn't have been enough for the potato chip, 
Um, we're getting the, the taste of the bird made into a burger prepared as a burger. And that's what we're getting is this flavor of this chip. Not just a regular burger, though. This is apparently meant to uh, approximate to a a quadruple burger made of uh, ground fictional bird meat. So it's not a single patty flavor it's trying to replicate. It's aiming to replicate a four patty experience with this fictional bird. Yeah. So, and they also say, um, yeah, along with the quadruple patty, it also includes the flavors of cheese, pickles, lettuce, onions, and an unidentified sauce. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and then I, I do like the, the distinction that this article has to put in here. Uh, the article from Michael McWhirter from polygon.com, he says, they are artificially flavored naturally, <laughs> which is like, like, well, obviously. <laughs> So, yeah. So it's not your standard Pringles chip either. This is a wavy variety of the Pringles chip. It is called Pringles Wavy Moa Burger uh, chips. They're sold, also being sold exclusively at Walmart for uh, a an indeterminate and not specified period of time. So if you're not familiar with, uh, or you're not steeped in Halo lore, the Moa is a apparently a flightless bird akin to like a turkey or an ostrich. That is indigenous to the planet Reach that was uh, featured in the 2010 Halo game, or 2010 game Halo Reach. Apparently hard to say. Excuse me. Perhaps I'm just hungry and need some uh, flightless uh, or some wavy Moa burger chips. That will satisfy my appetite. (laughs) Yes. So this kind of leads to an interesting uh, topic of discussion now in terms of ridiculous flavors, because you and I have experienced ridiculous potato chips from America Land previously. Oh, yeah. Uh, you and I have experienced, uh, one, I believe, cheeseburger-flavored potato chips that were Pringles. Yeah. And we've also experienced, was it pecan pie-flavored Pringle potato chips as well? Yeah. I mean, I've had a few of them as well. I've also had, like, turkey dinner-flavored potato chips. Yes. I also seem to recall there being something along the lines of birthday cake flavored potato chips I've had before as well, which was particularly strange. That seems like an affront to God. Yeah. It, it it's not something I would ever want to try <laughs> again. I mean, I've also had pizza flavored, you know, like I've, I've tried Pringles has had a lot of these different wild and wacky flavors. Um, and the interesting thing I find about the Pringles flavors often is how accurate they actually get in some cases, it's disturbing. Yeah. The accuracy of the flavor sensation in your mouth from that Pringles potato chip is almost spot on to the flavor it's aiming to replicate. Yeah, but my concern, though, with this is that given their history for accuracy, what exactly will this taste like? <laughs> like given that considering- there's no basis for comparison. Yeah, given that it's an entirely fictional dish, will it just taste like ch- like chicken or turkey burgers or something? Possibly. Is it is it simply going to be a, a rebranding or reskinning of perhaps uh, their cheeseburger line of uh, potato chip flavors in a new form, a new package, and sell it yeah. that way? That's part of me hopes that that's just the case. Have they invented a new species of bird only to kill it and replicate the flavor in potato chip form? 
<laughs> yes. The, <laughs> the people at Pringles Labs have recreated the MOA. <laughs> Pringles working in uh, in concert and in tandem effort with Dr. Moreau. <laughs> yes. Have invented a new species of bird and then promptly killed it to replicate the flavor in a potato chip. <laughs> yes. So it's... Uh, it, it's a limited amount of time. Sadly, the border is not open for you or I to travel across and uh, try and acquire this snack food item. Yeah. Though, if I'm being perfectly honest, the days of me going to the States just for ridiculous snack food experiences, I think are, are over. I'm, I'm, <laughs> if I'm in the States and I see it, yes, I'll certainly buy it, but I'm not going to make a trip specifically down there just to get it <laughs> anymore. Fair, entirely fair. It's uh, it's a hell of a thing. If you are out there, if you're listening to us in America land and you have tried these wavy Moa burger flavored Pringles chips, uh, let us know your thoughts. What do they taste like? What is the sensation like of eating a quote unquote Moa burger in your mouth? Uh, you can email us info at the or hit us up and let us know through social media. We are at the arcade show on all platforms in that we are on two platforms, Twitter and Facebook. <laughs> yes. Which still counts as all platforms. So all the platforms yes. we're on, we're at the arcade show. Yes. We're not on TikTok. We're not on YouTube. Nothing like that. TikTok scares me. I, I don't, I'm, I'm too old for TikTok at this point. I don't get it. Yes. I, I need a youth to come along and to show me the ways of uh, consuming and uh, creating 60-second, if that, long videos, all shot vertically, which to my TV broadcast sensibilities just makes me want to pull my hair out. Yes, though, you know, I, I would normally agree, like, if it was meant to be watched on TV, but since it's all ephemeral crap to be watched on a phone for two seconds and thrown away, it makes sense to me in the in the format it's in. Like, you're going to be on TikTok on your phone. You can't watch TikTok on your laptop or anything like that. So it does make sense. True. Well, yeah, in in that respect, I can see it uh, making sense. But uh, I just have ingrained uh, uh, processes of production that uh, uh, and creation that will not allow me to accept such things, but uh, I, I see the point you raise, and uh, I'm too old for it. I'll just uh, come back to that point as well. Yeah, that's fair. It's uh, it's passed me by in that I was never there, when, never around, or the target audience when it started. But it passed <laughs> me by, man. It was a good run. Yes. <laughs> but uh, because I am an old man, as uh, we have established well throughout the course of the uh, 20 minutes of this program so far, that <laughs> I mean... We talked about the weather, we talked talked about our ailments and uh, how I'm just befuddled and confused by TikTok. Uh, that, of course, means I am from a different era and certainly understand older things and feel more comfort and safety and security in older things, such as older consoles, older platforms. They just work. I have a collection, as you do as well, and I'm sure many of our listeners do as well, collection of old games for old systems that are long since uh, no longer supported but I'm not getting rid of them because I have them. I've spent the money on them, and I just like having them. And, of course, one of those systems that I have, you have, many others out there either still have or did have at some point in time was the PlayStation 2, the most successful home console of all time. Yeah. Um, yeah, PlayStation 2, you know, it it was really cool for a lot of different reasons. Obviously, the, the stellar game selection was a, a large 
factor in this, but one of the other things that was really cool about the PlayStation 2 was that it was totally backwards compatible with the PlayStation 1, so all of your PlayStation 1 games could just natively be played in your PlayStation 2, so not only was it a new console, but it was basically meant to replace the previous console because you weren't losing anything, you were basically just adding, it was a total value add. You know, you didn't actually need to keep your PlayStation 1 plugged in anymore. All you need is the one thing, and it's it still covers all the other stuff that you like to do, and you have all these new games. But I'm only bringing up the backwards compatibility to to pay off a thing a little bit later that we'll talk about. Um, but, uh, yeah, PlayStation 2 had, a like, as I said, a ton of really good games that, you know, were either first debuted that were later re-released on other consoles or first debuted and stayed there. Never, never did get re-released. Uh, that's true. If you look at the, uh, list of, uh, games that were exclusive to the PlayStation 2, it's a pretty stellar lineup of, uh, titles and games that were exclusive to the PS2. Games like, uh, Final Fantasy X, at the time it was, Okami, God of War, Ratchet and Clank, the Jack and Daxter series, the, uh, you know, Gran Turismo, uh, just to name a, a, a few, uh, Crash Bandicoot games as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, um, very interesting, uh, in that, uh, yeah, we, we got to see a lot of these games, but very interestingly enough, we now also get to see some of the prototypes of these games, meaning, you know, early, early versions, you know, maybe demo versions, maybe incomplete versions that didn't have the full mechanics or anything, or maybe it was just like first look versions that you went to E3 for demos purposes and whatever else. Um, a big dump of them got released uh, to the wild and made available online. Of course, not officially, but um, it happened nonetheless. It did happen. And this is, it seems like it's the culmination, the the high point, the zenith for a trend we have seen f- over the last several months and going back into last year of uh, game files, old game files, and if not old game footage uh, from canceled games, unreleased games, uh, prototype games being dumped online, either just as a video, uh, as proof of existence of a game that was canceled or more substantive data files from the game being released online for people to view, inspect, ROMs, whatever. Uh, I mean, I think it was last year there was the uh, quote-unquote Giga Leak from Nintendo, where there was a whole bunch of old Nintendo files that were put online, with fi- people being able to see files, artwork, uh, whatever, from uh, going all the way back to the Super Nintendo era. And in the past several months, we've seen footage from, I believe, the GoldenEye game for Xbox released. We've seen uh, the Dinosaur Planet game for N64 that eventually became Star Fox Adventures on the GameCube. That was released for public consumption over the internet. But this is probably the biggest dump of uh, unreleased stuff, of prototypes, uh, for old games that I think we've come across and seen for quite a while. So the group behind this is a video game preservation group called The Hidden Palace. And they released it. They initially showed everything off uh, a couple of weekends ago in a six-hour live stream with a bunch of playthroughs of old prototypes for the PS2, of things for Crash, of the, Crash Bandicoot, Wrath of Cortex, Shadow of the Colossus, 
uh, prototype of God Hand, uh, debugged versions of Final Fantasy X2, plus Legacy of Kane, Soul Reaver 2, uh, played a couple Spyro games, uh, a Ratchet and Clank game, Rayman 3, all in demo forms. And there's a huge listing of everything. If, if this is something that's catching your attention and you want to learn more, we link to the official page for this group, the Hidden Palace, on our website of thearcadeshow.com. And most of the software that's been dumped online, you can actually go and play through uh, with an emulator on your PC. And the group has said that even though this uh, initial batch of 700 titles seems pretty substantive, and it is substantive, they're working on adding more titles to this collection. So as it is, everything they've dumped online so far with these 700 uh, titles worth of prototypes, debugs, whatever, clocks in at almost 900 gigs of data. Yeah. So this is also, this brings me to, you know, the point I'd set up earlier too, where, you know, with the lack of backwards compatibility and with the lack of basically, because these titles, titles from this era exist before online game fronts and stuff. The only way that you were able to play some of these games were in disc form. I'm, I'm of course speaking beyond just these, um, the demo versions that we now have, uh, that the hidden palace is bringing us, but I'm also speaking of full versions of some of these games. And it's a little bit of a weird shame where, you know, people, groups like the hidden palace are basically doing unsung hero type work now in preserving some of these histories that are currently being lost because of hardware failure and just because of, you know, the limitations of physical media, like all physical media has a lifespan, which we're starting to reach the end of in, in terms of CDs and DVDs and stuff. Um, like unless they were particularly well manufactured, a lot of the data is starting to basically oxidize off these discs now because we're at the 25 plus year mark. And as we now know, CDs don't really last much longer than that. So it's up to groups like this, unfortunately, because you know, the main companies like Nintendo and the big publishers like EA and Ubisoft and all them and stuff don't really see the value in keeping old works like this available and playable. So, so kudos to groups like this for keeping some old games alive. Now, granted, a lot of the games are trash. Like, like, as Mike the Legend can attest to, like, you know, anytime, you know, the, the first time you've played probably like a retro pie type, you know, emulator situation, you know, obviously you see like the dump of like, you know, there's, it's easy to find dumps of like, for example, every single Nintendo Entertainment System game released or Super Nintendo game ever released or Sega Genesis or whatever. It's, it's very easy to like quickly realize, oh, 90% of these games are garbage. <laughs> like, I'm, like you'll play them for two seconds and go, oh, there's nothing about this game I like. Okay. Next game. But it's still worth having them, you know, available and around. If anything else, just to kind of see like, hey, here's a little bit of a legacy by some people that, you know, it's maybe worth preserving in some way, shape or form. I mean, movie groups do this with movies all the time. I mean, there's niche and um like cult followings of certain movie groups that, you know, keep this alive. Same thing with audio and music and stuff like there's. There's large swaths of like archives of 
things happening there, but it just seems like video games got very forgotten about a lot faster than some of these other forms of media. So yeah, just once again, kudos to groups like, you know, the hidden palace for keeping, keeping old video games alive, basically. Absolutely. And you might hear, uh, as we've been talking about this, you know, the, the size of it over 700, uh, uh, or prototypes, whatever old, versions of over 700 titles in some un, you know non-official non-final form 700 plus titles 900 gigs worth of data and you might be thinking to yourself wow hidden palace must have been working on this for years from different sources across the globe different people maybe old employees who still had their files or new of uh, contacts who had other files that they preserved uh, maybe developers uh, artists or whatnot to preserve their work because they knew the company they worked for at the time would not do any preservation efforts. So Hidden Palace, you know, having to patchwork their way to achieve the total for this dump that they have now dumped, 700 titles, uh, 900 gigs worth of data. And the answer is no. They did not have to really, you know, crisscross the globe in a sense. They didn't have to work multiple people, multiple places to get all this. Apparently, I think this is kind of what makes it crazy. Uh, they managed to get the vast majority of their content from one person. They have not said who this person is. And of course, why the hell would they? Don't know how the, how their source, how this person, uh, got all this, uh, material, but apparently the person was a game collector and also, I guess, game in historian in a sense to have all this old media, but it was obtained uh, from the, the person they got it from, got it from, or themselves got it from closed me- media outlets. So there might be review versions of games in here, uh, developers, you know, ex-employees of whatever, various other collectors, but, uh, yeah, the, uh, the person who had this, uh, so, uh, I should point out here that the Hidden Palace apparently sent, spent a year verifying that the software they got, uh, was different enough from the final retail versions to, I guess, justify putting online and also that they wouldn't really run into any sort of copyrights or takedown issues from ultimately the property holders. So uh, they also note that the person they got it from, uh, they say in their press release, quote, this person not only took on the task of backing up everything in their possession single-handedly, but was so overwhelmingly kind enough to let us look at and preserve each item in his collection with no strings attached. We would like to thank all members of, of the Project Deluge team for helping us with this project so far. Without your help, it would have taken eons for anything to come about. End quote. So... One person, it sounds like they got the majority from, excuse me, uh, I should correct myself. They got most of it from one person, but then had to source it from other areas as well. But even so, the legwork done in this is ridiculous and crazy Yeah, to then have this dump of 700 titles. Yeah, pretty much. It's It's insane. And it's without groups like Hidden Palace, and I know there are a couple other uh groups out there, organizations that are working independently of each other to preserve video game history, but it is not an industry-wide coordinated effort to preserve game history, old files, old materials, to save and back up everything to the cloud, uh, hell, even any sort of printed materials 
Like if there are notes or, or maps of, uh, uh, level designs, even old character art that, uh, maybe was, you know, drawn or sketched out uh, initially, that's not always backed up or retained uh, either. No, no, it's not. You know, that, that's another part of the the side of things that, you know, it's a shame to see it go away. I mean, we've lamented the loss of instruction books in the past as well, because I feel that the the instruction book is sort of, it was a very interesting thing back in the day because it wasn't, it wasn't always useful for the game, but it was basically like its own little thing to thumb through anyways for just an added layer of like immersion. You know, back before they could tell, I guess, like the, the more immersive stories that they tell these days in the games, they kind of had to leave a lot of that up to the instruction book to kind of set the story, which is very weird and interesting. It was. And, uh, it, depending on the, uh, the company, the developer, uh, or even the, uh, the people behind it or the game, the instruction manuals themselves could kind of become an, uh, a mini art book. Yeah. With additional art, uh, you know, pieces and a means of conveying, perhaps in the case of the old NES games, perhaps better conveying and representing what the characters were meant to look like than what you might experience <laughs> in your adventure of playing that game. Yes, exactly. So uh, a lot of this history is being lost and uh, a lot of this history is just not being worked at by the companies to be preserved either. No, it's not. Which is interesting and kind of slightly insane that uh, some of these companies would not actively want to preserve their history, uh, preserve the work done, even for education purposes in the future, to learn perhaps from past mistakes, uh, to go back and tweak things. I mean, if you're a uh, producer, director, writer of a movie, you want your old materials, A, for posterity, I'd imagine, but also B, to go back and revisit for later on, I mean... If you're producing a movie, making a movie, don't you want the film negatives as well to go and, I mean, if you filmed, if you shot a movie on celluloid, you'd want the old negatives to go back, to possibly go back to in the future, preserve in the future, redo in the future, future revisit in the future. So it's, it's interesting and impressive that, uh, uh, the Heritage Palace has uh, been able to source so much material and say they still have more to come down the line. Uh, so what else they have? I don't know, considering 700 titles seems like it would be a goodish amount of games from the PS3, but also there's a whole lot of content released for the PS3. Yeah, tons and tons of content. And you might be thinking that, uh, well, these practices or lack of preservation practices are is really just uh you know something that happened in the old days and uh uh perhaps uh, you know companies in this modern age uh, are perhaps better at backing things up having all their old materials and uh, perhaps old code or whatnot but i did come across a story just the other day on kotaku that was speaking about a ninja guiding collection coming out for the uh for the switch actually where some people uh, some fans weren't entirely happy with why some games were included and some others weren't and i believe koei tecmo actually had to uh they either put out a press release or came out in an interview but the the gist of it is why some games were included in this Ninja Gaiden collection for Switch and why others were excluded is because the games that were excluded were actually because they didn't have usable data or usable material, usable code from those games that they wanted to include, so they had to be excluded. Yeah. It ultimately was just lost. Lost or corrupted along the way in the 
course of going from those games being released back then, 10 plus years ago, to here we are now, wanting to do a uh, collection of games for the Switch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's, uh, it seems like, uh, you know, it would be a, perhaps a big undertaking for these companies too, to start better preservation, better archival practices as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's very easy to make the argument of like, well, this is something you should be doing anyways, but you know, like, as we've also seen, a lot of these game companies are sort of like beholden to a lot of crunch and, it's very much like rush, 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 get it out the door. Once it's out the door, move on to the next project. And, you know, oftentimes that'll just mean who cares about, you know, what happened to that project. It's out there. It's done. We have the final release. We don't need to worry about it anymore. Yes. And now that you're freed up from working on that project here, turn your attention and now start working on this other project that's, you know, been percolating in the pipeline. Yeah, exactly. So... Or if you get that big project out, you know, to use the case of Cyberpunk 2077 as example, if you get that, you know, big project out, you've crunched for however long to get it out the door. Cool. Now you have to turn around and crunch on the patches. Yeah, exactly. Which in that case, yeah, you're going to have like, if, if you're given that opportunity to kind of go back and keep working on, on the same project, yeah, you're going to have better practices in place because that's just the nature of like, you know, doing maintenance type work now, like that, like usually good backup practices and good, you know, code hygiene and stuff is going to be part of, you know, good maintenance work basically. So, but yeah, very interesting that, you know, the, 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 well, that use cyberpunk as an example, it seems like more people these days want to forget about that game than they do <laughs> remember it. So, uh, very funny. To me. Thank you. Uh, that's what I was going for. Yes. So uh, we'll see if uh, companies, uh, perhaps big companies, small companies, take a uh, better, more conscientious approach towards preservation, archiving of their materials, or is it just not important to them? And it's more important to the fans of the industry, fans of the art form of video games as well. Is it more important to them than the people making the, the art because right now it's looking like it's more important to people outside game development than inside game development. Yeah. Which is a crying shame. And I think part of it too is uh, if we look at something like the Library of Congress, which is a preservation effort done through the U.S. government to preserve artifacts, materials, pieces of media that are deemed culturally significant to warrant being preserved basically in a salt mine somewhere – uh, so they can stand the test of times. Uh, what is preserved is the written word. I believe books and poetry are preserved. Pieces of music are preserved. And also movies get preserved as well by being added to the Library of Congress in their, you know, vault somewhere. Uh, video games are not included in that. No. I'm sure at some point that'll change, but currently they're not. Uh, it is not. And uh, I wonder for something like that, if there was, to use an example of Super Mario Brothers for NES, if that was ever to be deemed as a title worthy of preservation by the Library of Congress, what would Nintendo have to turn over and submit to the uh, Library of Congress people themselves as part of the uh, title being preserved? Is it, you know, planning materials? Is it character artwork? Is it just in, you know, an original still mint sealed in package copy of the game 
yeah, because yeah, video games are quite the different medium, right? Because it's not like it's not like a linear medium that you you get the final copy and that's it. So like a movie, they might preserve like you know some reel that would have been shown in some theater or like some album you might preserve like a vinyl copy or something where, you know, as long as, as long as you have like the final copy and keep it in really good condition and some, you have a copy that won't disintegrate over time and it will always be able to go back and be played as long as you have a means to play it. That's sufficient. But with video games, it's tricky because even, even the most well-preserved code, like you can provide build instructions and stuff, but Build instructions, like, for example, like, if you, if you have, like, like, I don't know, let's say I was, you know, ID software and I've, I've released the source code to Doom. And, you know, it's like, okay, cool. Here's all the source code to Doom. We've kept it, you know, in good source working order and stuff over the years. Here's the build instructions and stuff. Okay. This is build instructions for some CPU architecture that hasn't existed in 20 years. What do we do now? Exactly. It's like, do you also need to start, like, you might also need to start including, like, you know, virtual system wrappers and stuff, which that, that gets very technically complicated. And, you know, I guess in the terms of Library of Congress, maybe that becomes unfeasible. Eminently possible. Uh, I mean, it'd be one thing to simply include the final copy, again, using the example of Mario, Super Mario Brothers from NES. It'd be one thing to include that, the still sealed, preserved copy, uh, from when it was first released in 1985, but you would, you would need something to play it on. So. Well, that and, that and the chips are gonna basically degrade over time as well, like, arguably faster than any of the, the mediums that the films and stuff we're going to be on presumably true. uh true uh, if you're pres- if the uh library of congress is preserving old celluloid reels perhaps the negatives um or whatnot those will store and keep better than a finished you know electronic item yeah so, so they it's it's a weird it's a weird question of like what to do i think in the terms of like some of these games and stuff what, you know, for example, Hidden Palace and stuff are doing is, I think, as close as we can get for now. And I believe Hidden Palace, uh, with their dump, they've uh, struck up a partnership with the Internet Archive uh, as a means of storing everything, as opposed to it being just on all their servers. It's posted to the Internet Archive, and that's it is through the Internet Archive you can experience this dump of 700 games uh, of demos, uh, worth of demos, and early versions, debug versions, that kind of deal. And we, again, you can find it through our link on to the official Hidden Palace website on our our home site and our website of the arcadeshow.com and check it out all out for yourself. But uh, even as you, a developer, I mean, as you've gone through and worked on projects, do you undertake any sort of preservation or archival efforts? Or is it just a matter of you're constantly being churned from one thing, you know, one project to the other to the other, and you don't really have time or don't really need the time to look back on what you were just doing. Well, when I was working on more project-based work where I'd go from project to project, I mean, that was more what it was like, like, you know, get this one out the door, move on to the next thing. And then you don't really worry about that thing that you kicked out the door until the next time you have to like worry about either security updates or, 
you know, if they wanted more, if the client wanted more features added to something, mind you, the situation I work in is a little bit different. I'm primarily a web developer, so I'm usually working on web apps and stuff. So the, the, the goal of it is for them to work, you know, when you open it up in a web browser. So the, the infrastructure to run it is mostly like, do you have a web server and is it running? Is the, is, are all the libraries you're using still, you know, being, uh, maintained and whatnot? And if not, what are the steps to make it work again? Like what do you have to replace and things like that? You know, and now these days I work more on you know, long lived projects. So yes, in a sense, like the code is technically being preserved, but we're always technically working on it. So like the release cycle for what I work on is a little bit differently, is a little bit different than, you know, a project like a game or whatnot. Like I'm working on, you know, websites that are always being kind of updated and maintained and features added to them and stuff. So it's a lot more iterative. Yeah, very much so. So yeah, so there will be things added here and there and, you know, we'd actually be kind of screwed if our, if our code wasn't in a good space for people to be able to pull and run and develop on. So, so yes, we, we have to keep things running, but you know, the code base as it exists a year from now might not resemble what it looks like right now. So that's the level of like what it is. And, but we, we have source control and very much so. And like, we'll be able to go back to any point in time if we really wanted to. So, so that's, that's where, that's where our code is at. And that's where most, you know, pro- web based projects and stuff are usually at, which is why, you know, a lot of the times when I talk about this stuff, you know, I, I put my developer hat on. I am speaking from a different type of development. Like being a programmer isn't just one type of job. Like there's lots of us who do a lot of different things. Like, like there's going to be commonalities to what we do, but you know, like there's going to be things where I look at this and go, I don't know what the challenges of this type of thing can be. Like I can't relate to them because I just, I just don't really know. Understand. So, uh, and I'm sure the experience of what you'd have to go through too. And you know, you can't easily be plucked in to go work on a game project and a game project per developer can't easily come work on what you are working on and uh, the people around you are working on either. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, it's, it's an interesting thing. It's a, but to bring it all back to kind of what we started uh, talking about here, uh, game preservation is ultimately up to outside organizations, individual, you know, almost consumer groups. And so the Heritage Palace, uh, or Hidden Palace, excuse me, Hidden Palace, preserving the heritage of old games, uh, are, have made the biggest dump of uh, old content so far. Again, we link to their page through our website, thearcadeshow.com. You can go there, read more, find out more, and uh, just experience some old early prototypes, say of God of War, Spyro, uh, games from the PS2 that were some of the best games of the time, and also some games that were hot garbage for the PS2 as well. Oh, yeah. There's going to be a lot of that. Yeah, because any system, be it NES, be it PS2, any system that has a lot of people releasing a lot of games for it, it's a uh, law of averages. There's going to be a lot of good. There's going to be a lot of bad. Yeah. But enough talk about old games. Let us take some uh, a few minutes here and talk about some new games, uh, perhaps more modern games, ones that use modern technology, uh, such as smartphones, augmented reality, and the like. Uh, one of the biggest augmented reality games going, and has been for the last couple of years, has been Pokemon Go. 
yeah, Pokemon Go is, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely, well, I mean, it's also not technically a new game at this point. I think, uh, it's very easy to, uh, well, I don't know. It's, it's several years old at this point now. So, uh, but yeah, it's, it's been around for a while, but it's, uh, they're always doing new stuff. Niantic is with the, the Pokemon Go type, uh, thing. So yeah. They are indeed, and uh, Niantic, as you mentioned, the developers of Pokemon Go, uh, they, in partnership with Nintendo, have just announced a new agreement that will see uh, Niantic work on and develop new AR game experiences off some Nintendo properties, with the first one being uh, a new AR mobile game based on Pikmin. Yeah, remember Pikmin? I I kind of vaguely do that uh, game series that started on the GameCube where you're the uh, little astronaut guy who crashed in in you know an alien world, but it looks like looks like someone's garden, and you have these uh, little weird uh, colorful creatures following you around. It's kind of like Lemmings, but with more slavery. <laughs> yes, in that you yeah, get that's... the Pikmin to do your bidding. Yeah, that's been my understanding of uh, what Pikmin is: Lemmings, but with more slavery. <laughs> I believe, I believe that was the, uh, the tagline for the game too when it came out, wasn't it? Uh, I believe so, but, uh, uh, I guess focus groups didn't really appreciate that, uh, that slogan, that tagline, so uh, Nintendo reworked it, you know, after, again, focus grouping and market researching the title, so, uh, they just found something more family friendly, less possibly confrontational and offensive to people, so, uh, but yeah, I mean, you're an alien invader who just kind of lands in this area and you start making the local creatures do your bidding and with the aim of them repairing your ship and so you can get back and whatnot blah 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 yeah 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 you you land somewhere that's not your home and you start making the locals do what you want them to do yeah so slavery you know it's it's really a fable based on and centered around european settlement <laughs> and colonialism so Yes, Pikmin is actually an acronym, which I'm not going to get in. I'm not going to get into right now. You you can fill in the blanks for yourself. Uh, but uh, jokes aside, on you know the the horrible comparisons being made between Pikmin and uh, uh, historical atrocities, um, uh, it is going to be the basis for a new augmented reality game set for release later on in the year 2021. Uh, Kai Kawai, who is an executive with uh, Niantic, said, "Quote: uh, This app will include gameplay activities to encourage walking and make walking more delightful. This will be the first title created by our Tokyo studio since it was established in 2018." So there was just an initial piece of artwork shown off for this pending and upcoming AR game that uh, shows the original three Pokemon varieties all walking around carrying fruits. So that would be the red, yellow, and blue Pokemon. Uh, they all have different flower colors on their head. Now, if you're thinking this is just going to be a game where you walk around collecting different colors of Pokemon or uh, Pikmin. Thank you. <laughs> Yes, not, it, it doesn't help that, you know, I'm just gonna stay right now before we get to, you know, just finish this up. This is Pikmin, not Pokemon, but their names are so similar. And it doesn't help that it's the, the same company working on both of them. And presumably it's gonna be called Pikmin Go. 
Uh, possibly, though I'm sure if they uh, were smart, they would uh, come up with a, an entirely different title, perhaps Pikmin Plus. You know, because Plus is not uh, hasn't really been used by anyone as any sort of digital product offering in the last couple of years. <laughs> yes. Though, yeah, I, I don't know. I Just for consistency's sake, though, I could see them still wanting to do Pikmin Go, as if Go is part of the brand or something of Niantic and... You could just swap things out before the word go just to make it uh, the same type of thing without it being the exact same thing. But yes, this is uh, Pikmin with the red, yellow, and blue Pikmin as opposed to Pokemon. With the red, yellow, and blue Pokemon. Yes. Uh, writing on Twitter, Niantic, uh, or the boss of Niantic uh, and their Tokyo studio, Tetsuo Nomura, said that this project would, quote, make walking more fun and be very different from Pokemon Go, end quote. Okay. Yeah, we'll we'll see. I mean, I imagine there won't be gym battles or or uh, anything of that nature. The uh, the entire aura of Pikmin is that it's a lot more friendly. It's uh, meant to be a lot more calm and uh, soothing, given that so much of it just takes place kind of in gardens and uh, almost really zoomed in on the uh, you know microscopic level. That like you're in blades, you're inside and walking around blades of grass, which are you know ginormous. Almost like a, a video game version of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've never actually played any Pikmin games myself. They, they've looked interesting, but I've never delved in. Um, well, not sure if... Now you'll be able to on your phone. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure I probably could with this. Or I'll just get an actual Pikmin game and play it like a real video game. Because the, the thing about Pokemon Go was it was fun for about a week. <laughs> and then it got boring. Yeah, yeah, I can see a, a lot of uh, repetition being involved and that just killing the fun factor. Yeah. And also, it also would kill the battery on your phone uh, as well, or on people's phones, as it was a big drain. Yeah, yes, it was. So we'll see if uh, the people at Niantic will resolve that with this uh, pending Pikmin AR game. Again, no official title. We're thinking it'll be something like Pikmin Go you know, Pikmin Walk, uh, Pikmin Garden Stroll, you know, whatever the case might be. But we have no idea what exactly the gameplay experience would be like either. Do you do you walk around? Are you seeing Pikmin everywhere? Are you seeing Pikmin even without the use of your phone? In which case, you will need to see a medical professional about that. <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah, we'll uh, bring you more details on the pending Pikmin uh, mobile AR game as we get them. But uh, going from... Uh, game franchises uh, that are, you know, being used to a very modern form factor and medium, such as AR mobile games, as Pikmin is having done to it. Uh, now news of a uh, game franchise that's being put into a very old, very classic form factor. Uh, and it's an unexpected title that's uh, now being given the uh, the old-fashioned arcade treatment. Yeah, it's, it's not really a title that I would have ever saw or envisioned evolving into an arcade type title when it first came out, like more than 10 years ago now. Uh, but Minecraft has kind of expanded out into a whole bunch of different, you know, wild and wacky, um, types of games. Like we've seen, you know, story mode type games. We've seen, you know, Minecraft traditional kind of carry on, but, uh, we've also seen a thing called Minecraft dungeons be released. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a co-op, action role-playing game 
that, you know, does have a very kind of, um, arcadey feel from what I understand. I haven't played it myself, of course, but, you know, I, I've seen, I've seen whispers and videos and such, you know, talking about it, playing about it and playing it and such. And, you know, it's co-op and it's, you know, uh, looks like it could be, you know, couch co-op or online co-op, whatever, but because there's the couch co-op aspect, you know, that's pretty much just an extension of what, you know, the four player arcade machines were. So it's very, you know, it makes sense that they would release a four player arcade version of Minecraft Dungeons, which is what they're doing in case it wasn't clear. Indeed. It's uh, going to be a full, like, four-player version, um, full arcade cabinet treatment, so you get the bright graphics, like the fancy HD screen with it, so you'll be able to have that Minecraft Dungeons experience in an arcade, you know, in a future time when we can have arcades again. Yes, or just for an arcade machine that if you want to spend way too much money on Minecraft Dungeons for your basement or whatever. Uh, you could do that as well. If you've got a couple grand kicking around that you just don't know what to do with and can't do anything better with, why not treat yourself to an arcade machine? In this case of Minecraft Dungeons, the official title for this experience of Minecraft being done in the arcade form is creatively Minecraft Dungeons Arcade. <laughs> I feel like there was eight seconds of thought put into that. Yeah, but it gets the point across. It does what it needs to do in its name, and isn't that all that names really need to be? You know what? You're right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, So this version of Minecraft Dungeons, uh, it's a bit different. It's not, you know, everlasting. It's got nine levels in total. Uh, Each player will only have to worry about three specific buttons, those being melee, dodge, and range. And instead of save files being on a PC or in the cloud that you'll just come back to continuously, Minecraft Dungeons Arcade is going to be using physical cards that uh, you earn through with each of your play sessions, and that will retain your character, the, your gear, your weapons, your skins, uh, all that good jazz of what you've am- amassed and accumulated through your progress of the game. And so each time you play, a different card will be given to you, uh, and that's yours to keep. And apparently these cards themselves, these cards that have your data on them, uh, will have a collectability aspect to them as well, because there's going to be 60 cards in total to collect, and each player can scan up to five cards per session with the help of a scanner that's actually placed at the top of the arcade machine itself. So that's an interesting way to work around the uh, uh, aspect of how do you save your character, how do you progress, because Minecraft Dungeons, not the normal kind of, you know, uh, jump in, play for two minutes, you know, you're done kind of experience. Not, it's not like an NBA jam or anything like that. It's not a quick over and out experience. Yeah. You, you'll be able to come back to it uh, continually on down the line. So, uh, yeah, different cards and, uh, hopefully we do not see the run and hoarding of these cards. Uh, these specific po- Minecraft Dungeon Arcade cards, as we saw with the uh, run of people trying to get Pokemon cards from Happy Meals in the States. <laughs> yeah. Though, I mean, it sounds like you'll have to kind of go through and actually play the game to get these cards, so seems like the barrier to entry to these cards is a little bit higher than just buying some food. This is true. Uh, although, I mean, people know enough other people working at arcades or or... Companies, they can probably get them through the back door. 
et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But, uh, so yes, that, uh, this Minecraft Dungeons arcade, it's been announced. There's no timeline yet, no firm timeline yet, uh, as for when it will be released. All that, uh, Mojang and Play Mechanics, the company developing this arcade machine have said is that it will be released later this year and released in limited numbers as well that will be distributed across North America uh, for testing and then later on this year. So apparently for the testing, I guess testing will happen soon ahead of a late 20 or later 2021 rollout. They've said that it will follow all local health guidelines to mitigate risk of the ongoing pandemic, which yeah, how exactly do you have an arcade experience in the middle of a pandemic? Exactly. It's it's literally everything you should not be doing happens in an arcade. <laughs> and then some, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean exposure to multiple people, not from your household, close contact, there's there's if you're playing at a Minecraft Dungeons arcade game or even any other arcade machine with other people, you're not uh, you're not keeping a six foot uh, space of distance between you and the others. No, you're also like not to mention the whole aspect of you touching surfaces that other people have recently touched, and you know I'm I'm sure there's you no know, like the the rigor of hand washing is probably not quite there with people in an arcade. Uh, certainly not. So unless there are going to be staff or workers inside an arcade, just continuously. Pouncing on a machine to spray it down with, uh, you know, some high alcohol contact cleanser to, uh, disinfect everything all the time. It's, uh, it's a little unwieldy to be trying to operate an arcade in these current conditions. Yeah. It's, uh, not the best of times, but Minecraft Dungeons Arcade will hopefully be there in arcades in the future if and when we ever get to that point, which is not a guarantee. No, no, it's not. But speaking of the future, uh, a future time is when you will have to uh, wait for this next, uh, next, I guess, uh, uh, tourist attraction to open up. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, there was the Super Nintendo World that opened up at Universal Studios in Tokyo, Japan. That, of course, experienced delays in its opening as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, and now the location in Orlando, Florida, has been announced as being delayed as well. Its opening date has been pushed back by two whole years. So what was slated to be an anticipated opening in 2023, now you'll get to experience, or at this current moment, you're slated to experience uh, and enjoy Super Nintendo World at Universal Studios Orlando in 20. 20- 25. Yeah, so um, I guess no rush. <laughs> so hopefully uh, Florida has, uh, you know, is, is at least in code yellow by that point in 2025. <laughs> is Florida ever really in code yellow? <laughs> <laughs> I think Florida is a perpetual code orange in every aspect. <laughs> yes, the Mountain Dew reference, the level of alert that you should be on. <laughs> The, you know, alligators, hurricanes, the people, the whole Florida man meme. Their agricultural, uh, agricultural uh, production. Yeah. <laughs> yes, to get a little bit meta with things. Yes, of course. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so this news was first reported by the Orlando Sentinel newspaper and basically cited the fact that uh, construction work on the uh, Super Nintendo World area of a much larger uh, Universal theme park called Epic Universe uh, has been delayed as a result of uh, just pandemic-related shutdowns 
apparently it's uh, now starting to, I guess, slowly ramp back up. But of course, you've lost an entire year worth of construction time. So that is not easy to get back. So it is slowly being ramped up. But according to the mayor of Orlando slash mayor of Orange County, where Orlando is located and the theme park would be located. Universal has uh, said and told him that they've pushed the opening back to 2025. So uh, a bit disappointing, but uh, not entirely unforeseen, not entirely surprising, surprising given everything that uh, is, has gone on and everything that is still going on. Although to look at Florida, I mean, they're over it. They are, They've defeated coronavirus and, uh, yeah, it's, it's all good. Business as usual. Everything's open. Like, like what coronavirus? There's no coronavirus and there never was. <laughs> yeah. And that's why they're Florida and not the rest of the same world. <laughs> Florida. Code orange. I feel like that should be the uh, state slogan that is emblazoned across their license plates. Yes. <laughs> Florida, the Mountain Dew state. <laughs> Precisely. Uh, speaking uh, of other game-related matters, not touristy-related, but instead legal-related, I think it was last week uh, during the course of our conversation about Google reducing their, uh, basically their Google App Store tax or uh, uh, Play Store tax, having it uh, for your first million dollars of uh, earnings, having it from 30% to 15% during the course of that conversation. I believe I mentioned that uh, App Apple and Epic Games will get their court case underway this spring. I uh, just wanted to circle back to that, if I will. You know, touch base, circle back, and uh, lean into things. Trying to use as many of the buzzwords as I can fit in appropriately here. Yes, of course. Are you, do, are you going to want to jump on a call? Oh, we're already jumping on a call. Let's be clear. That's what this is. Yes. We jumped on a call to start this, and uh, yeah, so it was announced a couple of weeks ago uh, that Judge Yvonne Gonzalez Rogers uh, outlined plans for an in-person trial between Apple and Epic Games, just given the seriousness of the of the case and the implications that could be wide-ranging as a result of the case. Uh, and she has set a date for May third of this year, so in just over in a month and a month and a half away from this for the trial to get underway in a court in Northern California, and the attendees will have to be there in person. The the parties, the lawyers for both sides, uh, Apple and Epic Games, will have to be there in person. Uh, they will apparently, in the court, uh, make accommodations, greater spacing, plexiglass barriers, uh, masking and whatnot to actually hold an in-person trial for this. But uh, So yes, it's going to get underway on May 3rd. No sort of timeline, anything announced for how long this trial is going to last, but trials like this will kind of... Uh, follow their own path through the legal process as there's going to be, uh, well, a lot of high priced lawyers on both sides who will be filing objections uh, and just doing a lot to fuck with the other people. Yes, exactly. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be pretty big in terms of what happens with the um, implications, no matter what happens. It's like, it's it's not going to be a small outcome from this. Like the 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 results of this are going to be very far reaching and will 
likely end up changing, you know, how a lot of, you know, online storefronts end up operating, which will be very interesting. And I don't, I don't think it'll be negative for us as consumers, but it'll be very interesting to see what happens for, you know, all the developers and all the people and, you know, Apple's, all, you know, Apple, Sony, Microsoft, Nintendo, Amazon, like anyone that has a digital storefront, like Valve, etc. I don't know. I do see a scenario where if Apple wins, that would be negative for the consumer because I would imagine, uh, they will have even, uh, it will, it will basically validate their practice of, uh, taking whatever percentage of any transaction that's conducted through their app store. Yeah. And Epic Games's argument is that, you know, why should you get any cut of any transaction done through your app store? You have an, your, it's a forced monopoly. No one else can release their own app store for your platform. You've created a closed ecosystem. You know, people have no other choice. Yeah. Yeah, and it'll be very interesting to see what happens with all of this because there's there's arguments to be had for both sides. Like, I 100% get it. Like, you know, we to hear more in-depth discussion about this, you know, just look through our, the archives on our our website, thearcadeshow.com. We've talked more at length about the implications of all of this. But, uh, yeah, I'm just I'm just waiting with popcorn <laughs> to see what happens <laughs> with all of this. Like, you know, that, that, that animated gift that has gone around like for years of like, you know, Michael Jackson eating popcorn. Mm-hmm. That'll be me. That'll oh be my. me just waiting for it to happen. And just sitting back and reading the transcripts and seeing the arguments made on both sides and be like, Oh, I can agree with that. Well, I can agree with that. Oh no, I'm caught in the middle. Who am I supposed to believe? <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I wanted this to be, you know, clear cut case between good and evil. Ah. <laughs> Curse you, shades of gray. <laughs> Curse you, life. <laughs> yes. Uh, one last uh, gaming-related news item to get to here this week, I believe, as uh, I've mentioned in reference over the past uh, couple of weeks, E3 is going to be different this year. Uh, but official confirmation came a couple of weeks ago that uh, E3 will not be a physical for in its physical form this year. The spirit of E3 will live forever, man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it's it's physical like, form. Yeah, just like a lot of artists back in the 60s wrote a bunch of songs about Woodstock. <laughs> I'm sure the same thing's going to happen about E3. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. Jim Croce. I can't wait to uh, to hear what he has to say about E3. Yeah, or, you know, um, Richie Havens to open up next year's E3. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, bringing it all back to the start when we were being old men and now we're talking about Woodstock, so. I yeah, our most up-to-date reference is now the 1969 <laughs> opening ceremonies of Woodstock, the music festival that influenced, well, our parents' generation, not even us. <laughs> yeah, our parents who are very much boomers. Way to make it timely. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> nice. Oh, man. 
but E3 uh, 2021, its uh, physical form, the live event portion, has been officially canceled. That according to paperwork, which had been filed with the Board of Los Angeles Convention and Tourism. Uh, the official documentation was dug up by posters on Reset Era, and it lists the E3 show as being a can- quote-unquote canceled live event. Uh, though with a potential license to return in following years like 2022-2023. So this is not entirely surprising. Uh, the uh, E3 like virtual event might still be conducted through parts or areas of the LA Convention Center or even you know outside at, as, at a place that's known as LA Live, which is basically basically just an outdoor plaza. Uh, around the LA Convention Center and the Staples uh, Center Arena. But for now, the physical form of E3, again, canceled, kiboshed, dead in the ground for 2021, which is not entirely surprising. Uh, but no official word or details on what the virtual form of E3 2021 will look like. So... Uh, We'll bring you those details uh, in the weeks and months ahead, although probably weeks ahead because E3 is normally kind of the start of June and we're just over two months away from that because we're almost through the month of March. Yeah. Yes, we are. Hot damn. (laughs) A little lesson for you kids out there. Time moves faster the older you get. It, It sure does. Why, it seems like just yesterday we were at the opening ceremonies of Woodstock. (laughs) <laughs> young Rishi Havens was blasting away creating the mood that would follow for the next three days <laughs> when eventually we would see such highlights as Jimi Hendrix playing you know a very heartfelt and you know experimental version of the national anthem and Carlos Santana thinking that he was fighting a snake when it was actually his guitar <laughs> What a time to be alive. <laughs> oh, man. But hey, speaking of things from yesteryear, I think this is a nice transition into our blast from the past. Yes, yeah, perfect transition, you know, <laughs> in case you're not... If this is the first episode you're ever listening to of this program, um, well, welcome. Thank you for sh- thank you for showing up at this part of the time of the... At this time of the show, we normally like to, you know, look back from things, you know... To a simpler time, or maybe in the case of this uh, this week, maybe not a simpler time, but just a time from several years ago where we looked at, uh, you know, media, things, um, objects, uh, experiences that you would have through media. Um, we like to revisit them and just kind of like give you something to think about again, maybe recheck out if you haven't heard about it or haven't heard about it in a while. Uh, this week we have uh, a movie and, well, a video game console that I believe is no longer in production. It is not in production, and we can't really split hairs between which one is the older of the two, because both of them are 10 years old. So, uh, perhaps in keeping with the overall oeuvre of this show, intending to be uh, your quote-unquote video game podcast, which of course, through the last hour or so, we've deviated into many other areas of discussion... Yes. Some of them current, some of them relevant, some of them uh, contemporaneous, others, God no. But uh, <laughs> perhaps we should start with the the video game console that uh, people got to experience upon its release on, Mar- or its release in North America on March 27th, 2011, or 2011, uh, depending on how you pronounced it. One, si- one side was right in, in that argument, the others were not. 
But uh, <laughs> this is a handheld device that was released by Nintendo. It was the uh, what they believe to be the next generation of their handheld platform, uh, the next version, uh, almost the next iteration of the 2DS, or sorry, the Nintendo DS, I should say, as it was just known back then, the du- uh, DS with its dual screens. So in keeping with that, Nintendo uh, iterated, they released a more advanced version, but with a uh, very specific selling point was the focus of the technology and marketing behind this device that was known as the Nintendo 3DS. Yeah. Um, now, admittedly, I only ever really played one of these once, but it was pretty cool. Uh, it made use of stereoscopic 3D effects, um, meaning that you didn't have to use 3D glasses to get the 3D effect. They had a slider on it that let you increase or decrease the amount of 3D effects that you were experiencing. And, um, yeah, it was pretty much just like the DS just upgraded a bit. There was a, uh, an analog stick as well as, you know, the 3d stuff added onto it. But other than that, it was just kind of like still similar, uh, DS kind of, uh, experience that you could have on it. It was, and uh, oh, it had a camera built in too, but uh, a lot of the focus, like I said, was on the 3D technology, which, I mean, makes the 3DS kind of a, a good microcosm of where consumer technology was, or consumer media, consumer screen-based technology was at that point in 2010. For for some reason, from, eh, say, like, what, maybe 2008 to maybe 2012, 2013, uh, a lot of energy, a lot of time, a lot of focus was put on making things and making experiences 3D. Uh, we got that with 3D movies and the return of wearing 3D glasses to movies. And then we also got that on the home side of, of consumer electronics as well with 3D televisions. And then Nintendo managed to achieve the 3D effect, as you said, glasses-free, just with uh, stereoscopic uh, 3D, meaning you didn't need to wear the glasses. It, it essentially was shutters or, or you know, panels that uh, would do the 3D effect. And instead of, uh, in the case of the 3DS, instead of feeling, feeling like images were coming off the screen and being right in front of your face, it felt like the screen got deeper. Like you could put yeah, your exactly. hand, hand through the screen and, you know, reach around as opposed to things coming off the screen towards you. But this is, this was the big, uh, big thing in consumer technology for like a good five, six year span around that time. And I'm not entirely sure why this was a big thing in consumer technology. Yeah, I don't really know either. Like as, as cool as it was, it never felt perfect. You know, like there's, there's a thing that seems to happen with a lot of these technologies. Like they, until we actually reach the point with, you know, processor speeds and, you know, sizes of things needed, we're not really going to get a good slash perfect experience with these things until they're almost seamless. Like, like the, the 3D aspect is cool, but it didn't feel perfect. Like, you know, like it, it did feel still a little bit kind of like hanging on by a thread. Like, like when it worked well, it seemed like it worked really well, but it didn't always work well. Like even in the few minutes I played it, I, I did try out a couple of games on the three DS. I tried out the, uh, the Zelda one, like the, I think it was a remake of link to the past where 
you know, like it, it, or they, they did a 3DS version of Link to the Past, I believe, where, you know, they, they used the 3D aspects to let Link kind of like jump in and out of like, you know, like solve sort of, you know, some puzzles using the, the whole 3D part. And I played a Mario game. I don't remember which Mario game it was, but still like it was pretty cool, but it didn't, it still felt like, you know, like if you weren't looking at it just right, it kind of fell apart. That's true. Viewing angle was a uh, a big thing for really any 3D experience you were having, be it uh, at home with your 3D television or the 3DS as well. Yeah. Or even in the movie theater, too, because uh, where you sat would uh, give you a better experience in the theater with three with the, you know, movie being projected and shot or viewed in 3D. Uh, you know, obviously yeah. you want to get that sweet spot in the upper middle part of the theater as opposed to right goddamn at the low end. Yeah. And even then, the movies that, you know, like movies had to really plan out the 3D beforehand, like... I think the only movie that like it really felt used the 3D properly was Avatar. Yeah. Like yeah. everything else. Like, I mean, I remember, you know, I watched a few of those 3D movies and I, I just kind of got to a point where it was like, ah, I'll just watch the non 3D version. Like it just feels less distracting. And you know, it, it's also the whole aspect of if you do wear glasses, having to put glasses on top of your glasses is not particularly fun. Um, Like both Mike Legend and myself can attest to it's not particularly fun. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, like I, I, I saw Judge Dread, or I guess it was just called Dread. Uh, it was cool as well, but it, it just seemed like the 3D scenes were a little bit tacked on and just for the whole, for us to have to wear 3D glasses the whole time, it really felt like there was only like two or three scenes that warranted it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I recall that. And I recall too, uh, around that time, say mid 2000s or, or not mid 2000s, uh, 2010s, you know, just a little bit before and a little bit after as many more movies ha- had a release in 3D format. Uh, 3D technology was something that could be added after the fact. It was almost a, an additional layer or filter or effect that you could add to a movie after it had already been shot. So things that didn't necessarily take into account or plan for a 3D viewing experience could have had a 3D viewing experience added on top of it, which didn't necessarily add anything to the experience. I, I did, I do recall having uh, a discussion about 3D movies. Oh God. Closer to around, you know, 2010s around that time with a coworker of mine who swore by it and thought it was a better viewing experience, you know, added so much. And I just looked at him and thought, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. It's the same movie, just with stuff jumping off the screen at you. And then you're paying an extra, like, 5 to $8 premium to for that movie ticket, which, what's the point? This is not new. This is, ni- this is a 1950s shtick, just being yeah. redone with modern technology. See, to me, the, the problem with 3D movies is they don't go far enough. You know, and they're not different enough of an experience for it to be warranted for, you know, for what they do. Like, like, what I mean by that is, you know, like, yeah, okay, fine. It's, it's kind of interesting to, you know, move your head and like see a slightly like, oh, I can kind of see around this person now. Like, it's kind of neat, I guess, but, but, you know, like, then you're kind of like, 
like, that's not really a problem with movies. Like the whole point of like having is as someone that grew up watching, you know, standard movies, <laughs> you know, we kind of get used to the fact where it's just like, no, you see what the director wants you to see and that's it. So it's just like, yeah, like, does it bring any benefit to the movie of being able to see slightly around this person's arm or whatnot? I don't know, but that's all you really get out of 3d movies. Now, to me, what's a lot more exciting and more of an interesting thing that, you know, could happen in the future is, uh, the virtual reality. So is it a lot cooler to basically create fully immersive 3d, like actually 3d experiences where, you know, everywhere you look and everywhere you move around, you're like actually immersed in like this scene, like, like that might be kind of an interesting thing instead of, you know, just a 3d thing on a screen. Like I can actually walk around the scene and watch it from the angle I want to watch it from, or, you know, hear the character, like hear it from the character's perspective that I want to hear it from. Cause I'm going to walk over beside where this person is standing and do that. That I think is a lot more interesting, but we're not really there with that technology yet either. No, we aren't. And if you really want a good solid 3d experience at the moment, um, your best bet or what your best bet would have been say at something like at, at a theme park, some kind of attraction where it's a static experience and the purveyors of the experience, the theme park people can kind of control for variables to give you the best experience with the 3d element, as opposed to, you know, you can't control where everyone sits and you can't control how someone will view that, uh, or have that experience of 3d, you know, different from where they sit in the theater, um, you know, that sort of thing. And also just create a more immersive experience. If it's, you know, once, you know, you know, contained environment the whole time, same theater over and over. Well, then you can have more bells and whistles uh, added onto it. I'll use the example of uh, a previous time years ago. I visited the universal Orlando theme park in Orlando, Florida, and they have a Shrek attraction called Shrek 4d where I mean, it's, it's an adventure, you know, with Shrek and his friends, you go on whatever experience, you're sitting there, the chairs have 4D motion to them, uh, so you get bumped around as, you know, the adventure happens on the screen, you're wearing 3D glasses the whole time, so things come off the screen as well, the seats move with you, and also, too, the seat backs in front of you have a uh, little sprayer, a uh, little opening on them that allows sense to be released to match whatever's happening on the screen or perhaps water to be, you know, shot at you to match what's happening on the screen as well. So, you know, three, yeah. if that uses 3D to create a more immersive experience with other things as well. 3D on its own is not really going to create an immersive experience. And this is what we found with the 3DS as well. Sure, there'd be depth added to the games, but I think after a while... People just slowly and, you know, progressively had the slider turned off on their device. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's data to back that statement up, but it, it I, I would imagine, like, I, I would imagine that most people found the 3D acted the same way I did. Now, granted, I only had a few minutes with it when I was trying it out. Like, for those people that had more, more experience with it, yeah, it'd be interesting to know, like, what your experience with the 3DS was. Like, did you find the 3D added much to your experience or did it just kind of hinder or did it, was it really as janky as, like, I remember it being? Like, yeah, just send us an email, info at thearcadeshow.com or, you know, maybe even better, just kind of, you know, 
at us on social media or whatever, and we'll we'll see your answers that way. That's uh, yeah, so, yeah. The uh, the launch lineup for the 3ds, um, not overly stellar. I think some of the standouts in looking at the uh, launch titles for the 3ds, uh, there was a new Pilot Wings game, which it had been a long time. It had been several years since the Pilot Wings game, uh, since Pilot Wings 64. Uh, and also the other title that stands out to me uh, was, of all things, Steel Diver, which was a, uh, a submarine simulation game that was done and created and released by Nintendo. Nintendo did a submarine game for some reason. Just seemed like one of those weird titles Nintendo would release, but only as a handheld. Yeah. Title. There's also a Nintendogs and Cats game. Uh, your standard things like a port of Sims, Rayman, Ridge Racer, that sort of thing. Um, you know, there will be some other larger, larger titles that would eventually make their way to the 3DS platform as well. I recall, uh, was it, uh, Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater was eventually released on the 3DS as well. And there was a moment in there, I think, uh, something we would have even talked about on the show at the time when it happened, when, uh, Snake, or Metal Gear Solid 3 was released for the 3DS where there was a mode where you could just kind of pause a scene and just kind of use the 3D to scan around and see the action and you could do that and I think people were using that opportunity to kind of pause and look at Big Boss's boobs. <laughs> yeah, because that's what people do. Yeah, in, uh, in, in that iteration, that version of Metal Gear Solid 3, so, uh, for the 3DS. I imagine too they also did it with some of the uh, Dead or Alive Extreme Beach volleyball games. Yeah, probably. Don't re- I mean I don't recall specifically if they came out uh, for the 3DS, but you know if they did, yeah, that's totally something that happened. So the 3DS, I mean, it was a more powerful DS. Um, but my sense of that time, as someone who didn't have it, was that they played up the 3D, and initially when they showed off when, it, when Nintendo at uh, I believe E3. Uh, 2010 showed off the glasses-free aspect uh, capabilities of the 3DS. It was impressive. I certainly did. I was impressed with the fact that they could do it. But in hindsight, 10 years on, 3D everything was simply a technology fad. Yeah. There were other interesting aspects to the, uh, you know, to the 3DS, like the ability to use Amiibos, things like Street Pass and Spot Pass, where you could just pass by people who had their 3DS turned on and basically swap Amiibos as well, uh, had an internet browser, had apps like Netflix and whatnot on it. So there were some positives to it, but uh, really focusing on that uh, 3DS aspect, eh, and I, I think later versions and later models of the 3DS kind of bored out the fact that uh, uh, Nintendo was de-emphasizing the uh, 3D capabilities and just focused on having better hardware inside, eventually leading to a schism in the 3D, 3DS model family as well, where there was the new Nintendo 3DS and regular Nintendo 3DS. But the new one had better guts inside, had a different chipset. Yeah. Which, of course, was a curious take. But uh, nevertheless, uh, just a, an interesting curiosity from a bygone era. The Nintendo 3DS turns 10 years old. So that is a more family-friendly experience. And now let's turn our attention to something that is 10 years old and definitely not a family-friendly experience. Yeah, this um, 
this next movie, well, we're, we're talking about a movie now. It's a 10-year-old movie that if you are – I'm just going to straight up say a fan of cinema. You should probably be vaguely aware of it or, you know, have seen it at some point. Um, it's not necessarily, in you know, an Oscar winner. Like, we're going to talk about movies – like, if you know the stuff that we've talked about in the past, you know that, like, we are actually fans of, you know – a wide variety of types of movies and stuff. And, you know, a lot of our interests kind of also go towards like the action movies, like the, you know, either action, comedy, these types of movies that maybe don't necessarily get the recognition they should get from, you know, places like the Academy and stuff because they don't fit the the traditional mold of what a good movie should be. But I would say that like a lot of these movies are actually good movies. They're just, there's different metrics for judging them like in line with like a, like a Schwarzenegger or like, you know, like in terms of like, you know, like a Schwarzenegger movie in terms of like being a good movie for all of like the ridiculous action and one liners or you know, a classic Mel Brooks movie for being a good movie for like, you know, how smart it is and how good it is at parodying certain things. Um, there are other movies that are still good movies because like there's such loving send ups to certain genres and, you know, provide such a good, you know, if not, um, like a good, if not, not, uh, particularly wide type experience with their characters, this movie, I think, is, you know, worthwhile. And this movie is Hobo with a Shotgun. Yes, a title that, uh, is eminently possible you've never heard of, let alone seen, because it was a small movie. It was, uh, a very small release, uh, but with an interesting backstory to it. And also, let us just say now and get out there with the fact that it's a Canadian production. Yeah, it's a Canadian production. Um, a lot of it, like, there's a lot of, like, references to Canadiana in there, which, you know, if you're not a Canadian, you might think, well, what the hell could be Canadiana? Like, we don't really know your culture. Like you might like most the, the impression I get from around the world is that they just think of us as America junior, which fair enough. I mean, in many ways you're kind of right, but we do have like a lot of stuff that is ours, like, you know, our, you know, our, our news and stuff like, you know, people on, you know, our national news, like they kind of end up being kind of celebrity ish. Cause like, they're just kind of like people that we all recognize, you know, we have the, the, trailer park boys as well as like one of our biggest comedy exports of the last 15, 20 years, uh, things like that. Like, you know, even like there was a, there's a Canadian kids TV show called the raccoons that was, you know, around in the late eighties, early nineties as well, where, you know, the, the end credits theme song run with us, which I believe was a, might've been a Linda Ronstadt song sort of became sort of like a, an iconic song, to Canadian news around our age as well. Uh, and yes, all of these things are referenced in Hobo with a Shotgun in one way or another. I mean, the the end credits song from Raccoons is played over the end credits with Hobo with a Shotgun, which made <laughs> me laugh quite a bit when I first saw it in the theater. Um, you know, one of the Trailer Park Boys, at least, like I, I can't remember if it was one or all of them, but Rob Wells, for sure, who plays Ricky in the Trailer Park Boys, uh, was in this movie. And, you know, they, they made reference to, you know, some CBC personalities wearing like classic 70s CBC sport coats and stuff. Uh, but one of them was played by George Strombolopoulos, who, 
he's kind of like a media figure, like a media like pillar and has been for several years in Canada. And he's, he makes an appearance in this movie as well. Uh, he does. And uh, I think he, uh, is someone who also, uh, well, this is, uh, a, a hobo with a shotgun is, if you can't tell from the title, it's a genre movie, but it's also a, a loving send up of like grindhouse B movies. Yes, while, absolutely. While also being a grindhouse B movie itself. Now, as I said, it's a Canadian movie and how Hobo with a Shotgun really came about and managed to come to fruition is that it won a contest prior to its release in 2011, uh, won a contest a couple of years earlier when Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez were releasing the movie Grindhouse. Now, if you've seen Grindhouse at all, you recall from that time, there were faux trailers uh, released both before uh, the start of uh, the Grindhouse double feature and in between the two movies. And the, you know, uh, Hobo with a Shotgun was selected uh, to appear uh, to the faux trailer for Hobo with a Shotgun was selected to appear in Grindhouse as one of the other faux trailers amongst many others like, uh, uh, you know, Don't, uh, Werewolf Nazis of the SS, um, uh, amongst others. Thanksgiving, I believe, was one of them as well. Yes, Thanksgiving as well. And and Machete. Yes, that's right, too. Machete, I think, is the most famous one because that eventually became its own movie. And similar to Machete, Hobo with a Shotgun became its own movie as well, though much smaller, given that it was Canadian and was filmed out on the East Coast. But uh, the trailer was ridiculous and the concept, and then ultimately enough feedback, uh, enough positive feedback was, was received that uh, Hobo with a Shotgun got turned into a real movie, and it's a real movie that stars Rutger Hauer. Yes. Like, the Rutger Hauer. Like, in one of his, like, amongst his last roles, like, not his last role, certainly, but, like, one of them, like, late-era Rutger Hauer, like, just so old, doesn't give a shit, will do whatever... I think if – I don't know if I would have enjoyed this movie as much if it wasn't Rutger Hauer in the lead, but he brings a certain level of gravitas that no one else brought. He's one of those – like one of those actors that just brought – like everything he did, he elevated in such a way that was incredible. That's true. And he, of course, has that in full effect here in Hobo with a Shotgun – as well as almost like an underlying intensity playing the nameless hobo who just kind of rolls into this town that is just downtrodden and uh, just kind of run down, burned out, clearly seen better days. And he's just trying to get by, scrape together a few dollars so he can buy a lawnmower and start a lawn mowing service. Yeah. And he's just being picked on. He's uh, basically having a rough go of it. And then eventually he just kind of snaps and starts getting revenge on people and exacting street justice on the uh, the bad folk in this town. And it just leads to a bloody, gory, bloody delight of revenge, of ridiculous one-liners, of uh, just r- many ridiculous things throughout the course of this movie that on their own are ridiculous, but then they're being done, ridiculous lines being said by Rutger Hauer that just kind of takes things to a whole other level. Yeah. And, uh, as I said, it's a 
you know, it's a violent movie. It is a very violent movie, but it's like B movie levels of gore. Yeah. Like that's, that's what I think. Like, I'm not normally a big fan of like, you know, the gore porn style movies. Like, you know, I, I have friends that just love crazy, like, like the crazy, like intense, like modern slasher movies that have like all this realistic style violence with like people getting their fingers cut off and teeth ripped out and stuff like that. I'm, I'm not into that. I don't like it at all. I prefer my violence to be over the top and cartoonish and obviously not real. Like, yeah, you can have like a lot of like exploding guts and stuff everywhere. Like it can be gross looking, but I prefer it when it's not real. And this movie, I think it, while it treads the line at times, it's definitely airing on the latter and not the former. Uh, this is true. And I, I have to think that's a conscious effort and deliberate, uh, part on the, uh, deliberate choice on the part of the, uh, uh, people involved, the production, uh, uh, people for this movie to go for something over the top and cartoonish. Um, it, like if you want an idea of just how cartoonish this movie is and also how Canadian, uh, at one point somebody gets stabbed with a skate. Yes. Like, uh, it wasn't even a hockey skate. It was a figure skating skate. If I recall correctly too. <laughs> I did or, yeah, I, I don't remember. That does sound right, though. But there there also was the depiction of a hockey game happening as well. Yes, there so, was. So, it, and yeah, like I said, like, I think George Strabolopoulos was – actually, this was maybe a little bit prophetic because he was one of the CBC commentators commenting on the hockey game. But this was before he was one of the hosts of Hockey Night in Canada. It was, and that ultimately proved to be a short-lived gig, only, what, two or three seasons before uh, he got turfed by Rogers, slash paid enough money to go away by Rogers, uh, and was taken off as host of Hockey Night in Canada. Yeah, but still, it was before he was the host, He th and then he then became the host, and then whatever happened after that is, you know, between between Strombo and the rest of all them over there on, you know, Media Island, but uh Yeah. Uh, it's true. So, uh, I mean, if you haven't seen it, find a way. It is 10 years old. It's a really small movie, uh, with a small release. I think it eventually came to the United States, but one of those very underground uh, movies that you really have to work to try and find hobo with a shotgun and just have, just take 90 minutes out of your existence to watch Rutger Hauer go on just a bloody journey of revenge and street justice to clean up the town uh, while he's a nameless hobo. So kind of the uh, quality of uh, the old Clint Eastwood spaghetti westerns where he's the nameless drifter who rolls into town but is also there and ends up helping the town folk clear out all the uh, uh, the, the scummy uh, bad doer or evil doers who are there just keeping it, all the other town folk oppressed. Yeah, that is, I think, a very good comparison to what this movie is. Yeah, just done, you know, contemporaneously with hobos and shotguns as opposed to the Old West and horses and six shooters. Exactly. Perfect. So uh it's a shame Rucker Howard was not nominated for the Oscar, but uh even so... You <laughs> He deserved it. That's our opinion here. But uh, let us know your opinion when you watch, eventually do watch Hobo with a Shotgun. Or if you've seen it already, let us know your thoughts on it. Uh, again, you can email us info at thearcadeshow.com or hit us up on social media. We're on all platforms. 
both platforms, Facebook and Twitter, <laughs> at The Arcade Show. It just sounds good to say all platforms, but at the same time, we are on two platforms. Yeah, it's it's kind of like saying, I like both types of music, country and western. <laughs> but we're on both, you know, <laughs> we're on both, we're on both social media platforms. Yes. yes. Facebook and Twitter. Yes. So, uh, and if you haven't uh, done so already, you can subscribe to this program and get it delivered to your digital store doorstep each time. Uh, we are on iTunes and Google Play Podcast. Direct links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of thearcadeshow.com. And just want to add one note at the end here before we dash away that we will be uh, away next week as uh, it will be Easter weekend next weekend. So we will be off and observe off in observance of that as we are good Christians and uh, <laughs> we'll be taking time to uh, reflect on the uh, death and rebirth of uh, of uh, Jesus Christ uh, as he gained that extra life. He got uh, 99 coins and then that hundredth just put him over the top. Yes, send all your complaint emails to directly to Mike the Legend. Um, yes, just put in the subject line R.E. Mike the Legend being uh, a terrible person. And I'll just uh, rig up the email so they just bounce and forward to Dennis's account. <laughs> Great, and uh, <laughs> I'll I'll set up a bounce and forward on mine to go back to yours. Oh. And, then we're, and then it'll set up this like you know bunch of internet traffic that uh, is self-contained and will potentially get us all banned. So, <laughs> so whoever sends an email is playing a very dangerous game. <laughs> It's true. So uh, we will be away in observance of uh, Easter, and uh, we'll be back again uh, after that in early February, early to mid-February. So uh, we hope you can join us again and tune in for that, and hopefully we have stopped being old men by that point, although the sad reality is we'll be slightly older men by that point. So, <laughs> Yes, but only slightly. Yes, only slightly. Time continuing to be a cruel mistress. So uh, until then, uh, I think all that's left to be said is a good night, everybody. Good night.